Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host, Dirk Tomza from La Trobe University. The COVID-19 crisis in Indonesia shows no signs of abating and the government continues to struggle to find adequate responses to the crisis. Official figures are still highly questionable and few international observers believe that the government has enough testing kits and medical facilities to get on top of the virus. Given the absence of an effective response from the central government, some subnational leaders have been able to raise their national profile recently due to their effective crisis management at the local level. Meanwhile, at the grassroots, many local communities are also trying to compensate for the lack of assistance from government agencies by starting their own initiatives to contain the spread of the virus. In today's episode, we are taking a closer look at some of these initiatives in the province of South Sumatra, where Sharon Graham Davis, the incoming director of the Monash Herb Feath Indonesian Engagement Center, and a team of researchers from Universitas Srivijaya have conducted research about COVID-19 and the opportunities and constraints for women community groups to help mitigate the spread of the virus. Joining me for this episode are Associate Professor Sharon Davis, along with Najma and Yeni, two members of the Department of Biostatistics and Epidemiology at the Public Health Faculty at Universitas Srivijaya. Welcome to you all, and thank you for joining me at Talking Indonesia. All right, Sharon, if I may start with you, first of all, congratulations um, on your appointment at Monash University. You should be in Victoria now, but um, COVID-19 prevented that for now, but I hope to see you soon in Melbourne. We have covered COVID-19 in several episodes before, uh, but since the situation is constantly evolving, maybe if you could kickstart the discussion by giving us a quick update of the current state of the coronavirus crisis in Indonesia. Thank you so much, Dirk. It's a real pleasure to be able to come together today to talk with you. And uh, yes, as you say, I am still stranded in Auckland. I'm actually, this is my second day on the job as Director of the Herb Feath Centre at Monash University. And I was meant to be in Melbourne. We are on the first available flight from Auckland to Melbourne whenever that becomes available. And we're hoping uh, in the not too distant future, we can make the trip across the ditch. So I had a look today, and now we're, we're mid-July, at the latest statistics uh, from the World Health Organization regarding COVID and Indonesia. And they're reporting via Indonesia that there are 74,000 cases. And what we know immediately from that is that it's incredibly low and the numbers are without a doubt much higher. I think there's two issues with the data. One is just the incredibly low testing rate. So it becomes almost meaningless whatever statistics are coming out in terms of cases and deaths because the testing rate is just so low. And then the other uh, issue is the quality of the data and of the testing and who they are actually testing. One of the issues Indonesia is facing at the moment is that after people have died, they're not necessarily tested for 
for COVID. Um, and, and in some cases, it's been a deliberate strategy not to do autopsies and test people because you can keep the, the figures looking lower. So there are real doubts both about the way in which the data is collected and how that data is interpreted. And there's no critical discussion really of that, both of the collection and what they're actually uh, testing. What's interesting is that this hasn't really changed, right? I mean, the, the virus is in, has been in Indonesia for a very long time. And from early on, questions were raised by international academics, um, by the WHO, of course. Um, have you seen any change in strategy or any adjustment of the government's use of data over um, the last couple of months or so? I wish I could say that I had, but I haven't seen any significant improvement in any of the responses toward COVID-19. A lot of that is to do with just very poor communication. So the strategy is not centralized in terms of communicating information, even about what people should do you know, to keep themselves safe. So there's not even consistent messages about hand washing, about whether to use masks on social gatherings. Uh, it differs from state level to local level, the small provincial level. There are different pieces of information coming out. So one of the big failings that is lingering is both the lack of good information enabling people to know what they need to know to mitigate uh, against COVID-19, but also the terrible amount of misinformation that is coming out. So the most recent one, the Minister for Agriculture saying that if you wear a eucalyptus necklace, you won't get COVID. And as far as I know, he or any of the other ministers who have very blatantly presented misinformation that is incredibly dangerous, have not been censured in any way. So there's a real lack, I think, of clear leadership from the central government in terms of communication, in terms of strategy, and the very piecemeal offerings that have been given. So there's been some uh, cash payments or food handouts have not necessarily reached the people that they need to reach. So you might need to be registered in a local area in order to get the food package. But as we know, there are many people who are not registered at all, let alone for the place in which they would need to be to get that um, food subsidy or the cash handout. So I haven't yet seen any systematic, clear, decisive action from the top that would help Indonesia really make some headway in terms of protecting the lives of Indonesians. What's really remarkable in view of this is that despite all these concerns that we have read over the last few weeks about um, the Indonesian government's handling of the crisis, Indonesians themselves seem to be largely satisfied with what the government is doing. I was quite surprised when I was looking at a public opinion survey by the Saifah Mujani Research and Consulting last month that um, I think it was around 80% of respondents agreed, for example, that um, mosques can be open again, public transport is free to use again, um, even though the numbers of infections were still rising, and even though all these problems that you've just described were still around with assistance reaching down to the local level. So there seems to be a real discrepancy 
between what external observers are seeing and with what Indonesians are actually seeing. So I'd like to bring in um, our other two guests here into maybe ask Sharon to respond first. How do you explain this discrepancy? And then if I could ask either Yeni or Najma to provide your views on why Indonesians seem largely satisfied with what the government's doing. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think there's a number of reasons behind that. One is that Indonesia has such limited capacity for enforcing stay-at-home regulations, for instance, that people, unlike in places like Australia or here in New Zealand, where people can access a wage subsidy, in Indonesia, the choice is not to stay home or go out. The choice often for many is, shall I stay home and keep my family safe or shall I go out and get money to get them food? And, you know, dying today is worse than dying next month. So there's a real pressure and inability of people to be able to stay home. They just have to go back to work because Indonesia has not been able or not been inclined to provide the types of subsidies and assistance that people need to keep themselves safe by isolation, self-isolation, for instance. So when Jokowi opens things like workplaces and malls and public transport, people are immediately happy with that because it enables them to get on the bus, to get to their job, uh, to earn, hopefully, a bit of money that they can feed their children. And one way that you can make solace with that, going out into a world that's incredibly frightening because COVID is everywhere, is by taking refuge in your faith. And so if you can believe then that that this journey that you're on is the one that is meant for you and it will be all right at the end, it makes that process much easier. So you want to be able to go to your places of worship, such as mosques. And so with Jokowi opening um, the mosque, for instance, it's easy to see why people then think, you know, that they feel quite satisfied with him, that they haven't the government hasn't locked them down as in other places. They're still able at least to make an effort to, to get money and go to their places of worship. So I think that plays a role in that. And when you're struggling at that level, it's impossible to look beyond that either long-term or globally to see how these short-term decisions and abilities that you have are in the long-term going to be quite disastrous. Mm. Najma or Yeni, can I ask you for your views on this? Okay, I will add some views from my perspective. Being an Indonesian, that we should understand Indonesian context. The main problem is every challenging that related to public needs in Indonesia, such as education, health, and social welfare, cannot be separated from the lens of the politics in Indonesia, which is a populist country. So far, being an Indonesian, we are aware of that populist approach or it's known or with pencitraan we call it in Indonesia and it's a part of Indonesian politics and we should be smart as Indonesian whether is it true or not what the politician said about COVID-19. The mm. problem is it may be problem if this approach may use to solve the problem such as COVID-19. Therefore, the politics and health sectors need to be separated. 
Sadly, the majority of leaders, including local or central governments, still consider that the success of the COVID-19 mitigation will benefit with their future elections at the local or central government. So they might be very careful to make health policies they may might impact on the, their profile, such as what, what Sharon said about the most. Indonesia government um, might be afraid of closing praying facilities such as mosques because they still consider the reaction of society, particularly Muslim, the majority of religion in Indonesia. Yeah, indeed. So with mosques and malls, um, workplaces, public transport, all of this open now again, Jokowi has described this as the new normal. What do you see as the main risks if that goes ahead? while infections are obviously still rising, but no one really knows the extent to what they are rising. We are still running the research about the perception of new normal and COVID-19 in the community from low and middle, middle income uh, families, which as over 70% of uh, Indonesia com community are, uh, are on this category. So based on our informal or online interviews, how do you define the new normal? Some of them say that back to normal or kembali to normal. And others say no corona again. And some people say that it means that no, no radia masker or mass reads. And others say that no police or soldiers that scatter the crowd or to check your identity card in public tra transportation. And from the social media, we also observe that the meaning of new normal that means we can go outside, have holiday, go to the malls. And in the end of July, people can watch movies again. And interestingly, some of that I meet in the fieldwork that people already celebrate wedding again with the crowd. So it's interesting because only small part of them using masks. So what is the risk of the new normal? Currently, that Indonesia has a high increasing new number of COVID-19. So every day now, it's reached over 1,000 new cases. Last week, even one day, they announced 2,600 new cases within a day. And secondly, many, nowadays, there are many new clusters of COVID-19. Currently, there is a big cluster in military schools or Secapa, Sekolah Calon Perwira, over 1,000 confirms positive COVID-19. Sadly, there is increasing numbers of health workers who got infected COVID-19 and passed away. And it's so very sad. And the government always announced every day that we watch on the television that they, they seem that believe that the community will enforce the health protocols. Yes, we did that in the formal sectors. For instance, if I want to go to to the banks, go to the, my university. We have the protocol using masks, wash the hand, and etc. But can you imagine whether the community do it in the traditional market, in the kampung or crowded some urban area or village? And this morning, I asked my friends that, what do you think in new normal nowadays? They said that, yeah, nothing happened. It's just like normal. People seem like you say it's people say happy because they can earn money again. Okay, let's take a closer look now at South Sumatra, where the 
project that you've been doing is located. Uh, Najma and Yeni are from the area and Sharon, I think, has assisted with some of the research as well. So before asking you about the actual work that you've been doing, can you give us just a brief overview of um, the COVID-19 situation in your province? Is the pattern more or less similar or from other places in Sumatra? How does it compare to the most heavily affected areas in Java, for example? Um, and what's your local government doing in order to contain the virus? Maybe if I can ask Yeni this time. Okay, uh, okay, thank you. Since the first COVID-19 case in South Sumatra was announced on March 24, 2020, currently South Sumatra has been ranked seventh in the highest number of cases in Indonesia and ranked 24 for the recovery rate of 34 provinces in Indonesia. On July 13, 2020, the number of positive cases in South Sumatra was 2,700 cases and 129 people died due to COVID-19 in South Sumatra. The lack of hard resources and the unclear of policy direction in responding to pandemic made the spread of COVID-19 in South Sumatra continue to occur. Thanks for that overview. So what prompted you to start this research project then, um, focusing specifically on women empowerment during this time of crisis? Did you detect any particularly glaring problems around you where you thought, okay, this is something that we want to understand in more depth? Najma? Yes, we understand that in the early of pandemics, fears of COVID-19 is real. And we understand that uh, not all people, including health workers, are brave enough to go to the grassroots to do the health promotions. But now, interestingly, after three months of the first cases were announced in South Sumatra, health people may believe that corona exists. Unfortunately, health people may think that corona issue is not real and hoax. And some of my participants told that the number COVID-19 tend to increase, but we didn't see who they are, where they are, because there is a notion of shame, so the case is hidden. So we don't know who passed away and who buried with COVID-19 procedures. So we're aware that asking full awareness from the Indonesian community with diverse social economic backgrounds is not easy. But to complain the late response of our government is useless. That's why we start a small action from our surrounding communities from women that surrounding me. What, why we start with the woman? Because I believe that being a woman, being a mother with three little kids, that we believe that a family is an important part of our daily and social life within religious and social cultures. And in particular to Indonesia, most of Indonesian women is housewives or iburuma tangga. So in general, Indonesian women, are after they're getting married, despite they working outside the house or not, have important roles in their family to manage their family, to raise their kids, and to protect their family from the harm, including from the COVID-19 virus. So we call it, our movement is the power of emak-ma. So emak-ma means that's mother. So why we start with the woman? And so in this project, you've observed the activities of some small women's groups in Palembang and some individuals, I think. 
did these women become involved um, in this kind of community work as a direct response to the coronavirus or were they already sort of local level activists who just switched their focus now that the crisis has hit? Most of the women that got involved in our social movement are housewives. So previously, some of them just focus on their motherhood or some of them teachers. But I feel that in this movement that why I choose women because I'm a woman and I feel I'm just a trigger of this movement. What we did that we built trust with the women surrounding me, tightening the relationship with them and hearing their voice and experience related to COVID-19. I believe that they know what happened in the grassroots level. After this process, we believe that there was a critical awareness from this woman. They said to us that we can do for our communities. Who can move while other people stand to choose work from home? So if everyone works from home, who will share about the public health, about the dangers of COVID-19? Because not all people check their mobile phone because there are a massive uh, health promotion through social media. But not all people use mobile phone to understand about the health promotion. So the woman surrounding me, over 10 women, answered me that we can go to the field, meet the kids to the health promotion from one small community to another small communities. Because some people say that uh, work from home, stay from home. Hello, you should see the real life. People from family low and middle income country, their kids still play outside their house. So all social movement just run naturally. We come to the spots where they play and we posted our COVID-19 awareness movement to social media. And interestingly, that some of our friends that offer their help to provide the free masks, soaps, fosters related to COVID-19, then other stuff that we need. Without we say that we need help. No, they just text me, can I help you? So all of the stuff we provide for the community are free. And we educated for over 300 kids and have shared over 1,000 masks during our field works. And it's from all from community, not from the government. Yeah, sounds as if you're filling some of the gaps left by government agencies there right on the ground. Um, so you've described some of your activities, distributing masks, obviously very important, engaging with the community, providing information. And you did mention children. Can you tell me a bit more about that? How important do you think is the role of women in educating children about the virus? So it's interesting how to inform the information to the kids. So it's interestingly that the first stage that our research that we perform COVID awareness 19 with over female volunteers and mostly of mostly they are teachers so guru ngaji or Islamic schools private teachers so they are respected by the kids surrounding their house so what we learn from the kids understanding they understand that the danger of COVID 19 after a series of health promotion because we did over one uh, four times meeting within a month for every groups and they the kids say to us that what do you understand about the COVID-19 and they say it can make you die so some of them also explain about the importance of wear the mask or 
reported their friends who do not use the mask to our female volunteers because they try to motivate each other and we also give a small gift if they can discipline using masks within one month. Initially, they don't know how to do proper washing hand, but after we train, they understand about it. But the challenging for now, Dirk, that nowadays, the kids understand it's new normal. And they also interpret that new normal is corona is already fly on the sky. When we ask them, why you don't use mask again? The corona already on the sky. So it's a bit challenging for, for us that after we have a regular intervention and the government announced about new normal, it's just like break the, the, what we have done. And for now, we focus on the evaluation of the COVID-19 awareness for the kids. And we still think how to do new approach in this new normal. We've been reading a fair bit about um, the kinds of localized community groups um, that are helping at the grassroots with containing the spread of COVID-19. So it was really good to get your insights from South Sumatra. Thank you for that. I've been wondering whether Sharon perhaps could Tell us a little bit whether there are opportunities for these various localized initiatives to network, perhaps, and offer opportunities to learn from each other. Um, are you aware of any broader sort of um, networking initiatives around these groups, or is it all fairly isolated, just responding to um, local conditions? I think... One of the things about COVID-19 in the responses is that it's brought out the very worst in a lot of people, and we could think of a number of world leaders to put into that category. But it's also brought out the very best in a lot of people. And I think the work that Najma and Yeni are doing shows exactly that, that people in Indonesia have realised that central government is not going to come and help. And they've realised this over a long time, that the government is quite impotent in many ways. And if they need help, the government is not the place generally to go for that. And so we see this incredible work and we see in Indonesia, Goitam Royong, so a whole bunch of very local well-connected, caring communities come out and support each other with nothing. So most of the people doing this work are volunteers. They're giving up, you know, they're already limited time and resources to try and help community members. And it's just extraordinary to, to hear of those stories. In terms of these grassroots organisations linking beyond their own communities, I haven't heard much about that. And I think the reasons for that are that people are so overcommitted with extremely limited resources that there's just not capacity for that. And again, this is somewhere that a strong central government could come in, look at the local work that is being done by various organisations and provide some central conduit through which these various communities across Indonesia can can be connected. So in some ways, you know, they would they and they are doing the work of the government for the government. And the least that the government could do would be to provide channels to connect these various communities. So you can learn about best practice, you can learn what worked, and they could institute much more effective and, and wide scale approaches and we heard just then from Najma that 
you know, their incredible work of providing information and education on the value of wearing face masks, on washing your hands, for instance, has now been superseded by Jokowi's announcement of a new normal, which people have interpreted as COVID is over and done with. Let's just go completely back to normal. So a lot of the work that these grassroots organisations have painstakingly done over the last months to try and get people a little bit empowered and a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of resources in the terms of homemade masks for instance, have been completely wiped out now by this government rhetoric. So I don't see much cooperation because there's just not capacity. But what I would love to see would be national government or even you know higher up at local governments recognising the work of these communities and fostering that. Yeah, maybe on that note, we can sort of start to wrap up the podcast. Uh, I want to ask you about what kind of prospects you see for... Um, Indonesia in the coming weeks and months. In particular, do you see any prospects for better collaboration perhaps there between the state and civil society? Local government, such as South Sumatra, need to empower the grassroots community with the clear information about COVID-19, like Sharon said that. We have the spirits of Gotong Royong work together to solve the problem. And as we know that the local government has the small unit grassroots we call that rtrw or lura so the small community gatherings or puskesmas and posyandu so we just walk a few steps so we can find that that health centers but what the government needs to do that they need to provide facilities such as transport station or to support their movement providing masks soaps and atc and secondly that the government should control the hoax regarding the COVID-19. Like the current issue now that we listen very often in the community that the community feel afraid to access the health services. Why? Because every patient who is treated in the hospital, family need to sign the forms that state that if their family members that are treated in the hospital pass away, they agree their family will bury it with the COVID-19 protocols. So people say that we go to hospital and then they judge us as COVID-19. So because there is no clarification information from the government, so people believe the information from the mouth to mouth about this. And lastly, the community need to know that we are not in safe condition now. So what one of epidemiologists said that Dr. Pandu Riono that and their team said that in Indonesia, it will predicted that the new cases will reach over 4,000 every day in the September and October, and it keep rising till in the end of 2020. So we need women's empowerment, family empowerment to keep aware that we are not in the safe condition now. And Sharon, you want to add the last one? No, that was great. That was great. Yeah, well, I certainly hope that um, you and the woman that you're working with can continue to make a small contribution, at least on the ground. Right. Thank you very much for these insights, Sharon, Najma and Yeni. I really appreciate you making the time to speak to us. Please stay safe. 
both in Indonesia and in New Zealand and soon in Melbourne, Sharon? Yes, hopefully. Fingers crossed. All right. So that was the latest Talking Indonesia podcast episode with Sharon Graham-Davies from Monash University, as well as Najma and Yeni from Universitas Srivijaya. Please join us again for the next episode on the 30th of July. Finally, as ever, don't forget that you can find the entire archive of the Talking Indonesia podcast at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, or you can subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thanks for listening and till next time.